Listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll be answering the first round of questions. Well, I'm back actually fairly quickly compared to the last episode, and as you can probably tell from the vast echoiness that you are hearing in the background, I'm in a new house in central Pennsylvania preparing for graduate school. In fact, my uh, abode is so empty and dearth of stuff that I had to assemble an empty cardboard box baffle in order to cut down on as much of the echoing as possible which is still not enough, so sorry for the audio quality. But anyway, a few updates. Uh, I managed to take this summer an epic trip across the country twice by Amtrak. Early in the summer, on the way out, after moving all of my stuff to a storage locker in Pennsylvania, I took uh, a bus from State College to Altoona, where I took the Pennsylvanian to Pittsburgh, the Capital Limited to Chicago, the Empire Builder to Portland, and Amtrak Cascades to Seattle, where I then spent about one and a half to two months with my family. Then afterwards, actually just a few days ago it finished, I got the Coast Starlight from Seattle to Sacramento, spent a few hours in Sacramento, and then I took the one and only California Zephyr all the way on into Chicago, where I made a few lifelong friends, dare I say, before taking the capital back to Pittsburgh and the Pennsylvanian back to Altoona, where it all ended. I've been in this new house for about, oh, I don't know, three, maybe four days, and I've been uh, hurriedly unpacking some things and building IKEA furniture in order to make sure that I am as ready as possible for, for graduate school. I have my layout in the garage, in pieces, and I'm probably not going to be able to touch it for a few months. At least until the house is settled, and then after that, at least until graduate school is up and running. And even then, it, it's going to take a while. So in the free time that I have, I will try and give you as many episodes as possible, but understand that my life is exceptionally busy at this current juncture. 
Um, but on the upside, Pennsylvania has a very rich railroading history, and I've already identified a few narrow-gauge railroads that have caught my fancy, so who knows? Maybe I might entirely eschew the Kennebec Central, use what I already have as intermediate towns or temporary setups, and then start moving on to filling that enormous basement with railroading supplies and materials, which is a very fun thing. But in the meantime, besides all of that, I decided to give you this uh, shorter Q&A episode. After all, this is what the podcast is supposed to become eventually once I run out of stuff to talk about, a Q&A service to help the beginner understand what it is that they have to do. So I've assembled the first round of questions and my answers, including one from our Facebook group, which I will get to in a few moments. As always, if you have a question, you can email me at bgtmring at gmail.com. You can visit the contacts section of the website at bgtmring.org, or you could visit our Facebook group, which is linked to on the website. Anyway, on with the show. Richard asked, What are the advantages between HO and N scales? Can I mix and match equipment from different manufacturers? Because I have some Markland stuff from when I was a kid. Well, Richard, you asked two very interesting questions. Let me break it down for you. First, HO versus N scales. Right off the bat, N scale is smaller, so you can fit more stuff into the same space and have a visually more expansive railroad. On the other hand, N scale is also smaller, so it's more difficult to work with and can be more expensive to outfit because you need more stuff to fill the same space. Larger scales are also usually preferred over smaller ones because they give a heft and they add realistic weighty magnificence whenever the train moves. But on the flip side, smaller scales are usually preferred because it's easier to make dramatic scenery that dwarfs the train, which is something that you can't do in a larger scale unless you have a very enormous space to fill. Honestly, it really boils down to your particular interests and your space constraints. For example, if you want to model a modern long-haul railroad through the mountains but you only have a small space, N-scale is probably the better option. But if, for the same space, you're more interested in a switching layout, HO is probably better. Either way, you've picked two very good scales to model in as a beginner, because both are very popular and well supplied by hobby manufacturers. So if you want a particular structure or model, it's probably been produced, and if you need help, there will definitely be some nearby modelers whom can offer you assistance. You also bring up another interesting point with Merklin. Normally, all products in the same scale will look good together, and all train equipment and rolling stock in the same scale and gauge will also work interchangeably. This is true for most equipment that follows the NMRA standards for recommended wheel shapes and couplers. However, if they have pizza cutter wheels or manufacturer-specific couplers, like in some cheap or old train sets, most famously the Rapido couplers in N scale and the Hornhook couplers in HO scale, the equipment is more likely to derail or won't couple to other cars, but these are two problems that are very easily solved with five minutes on the Walthers.com parts department and two minutes on the workbench. The one exception to this is Merklin equipment. Remember how Lionel O-Scale uses three rails to simplify wiring for younglings? Basically, if you have two rails, one of each polarity, reversing direction with loops requires extraneous electronics to flip the rail polarities without having the train stop around the loop. But if you have a third middle rail, then the inner rails will always be one polarity and the outer two will always be the other. 
This was used originally to simplify wiring for small children in train sets because it allowed them to build much larger railroads without concern for electrical operation, and it has been carried on to the modern day largely as a factor of the economic principle of path dependency. While this does bring easy reverse loops into the realm of children's floor layouts, it comes at the expense of realism, with that obnoxious, unprototypical third rail staring at you all the time. Well, when designing their trains in the early 20th century, Marklin decided to add a third rail like Lionel for the same reasons, but they came up with an interesting solution for the looks. Instead of a third rail akin to the outer two, they decided to include on their track a very low-profile row of studs down the middle of each tie, which would have a very tiny and difficult-to-spot electrical contact on the top that carries the other rail polarity. Each locomotive then had underneath it a long, skinny metallic pad, about four to six ties long, that would ride from stud to stud. This way, there was still a middle rail delivering a second polarity of power to the locomotive, making it a lot easier to wire for young children, but it also looked a lot more realistic by actually hiding that middle contact point. So, to answer your question more specifically, kind of. Most equipment of the same scale and gauge is interchangeable, with the exception of Merklin equipment. Merklin locomotives can't run on non-European track, and non-European locomotives likely won't run on Merklin track. When in doubt, consult the manufacturer's literature. If you want to go into a European prototype layout, this isn't so much of a problem, because you can, with extra parts and a few minutes on the benchwork, convert all your other types of HO scale equipment to run with Merklin couplers, but if you want a locomotive, it's probably going to have to be from Merklin themselves. Anna from Oregon asks, Being a woman in the hobby is sometimes difficult. It is very male-dominant, and I sometimes feel uncomfortable with how people view me when I'm working on trains. Any advice? Well, right off the bat, model railroading is not just for men, let me say that. There are four female master model railroaders, and the number of prominent female modelers in the hobby is growing every day. While I'm not so much of a social-advised columnist, I would like to provide you with these two ideas on how best to proceed. First, I would recommend showing mastery of your knowledge on the subject. Modelers, in aggregate, are generally a welcoming group, willing to learn about and discuss the subjects close to their interests. If you can show the modelers whom are giving you trouble that you can speak on their level, they will more than likely come to give you the merit you deserve in time, and any archaic preconceptions of gender stereotypes are thenceforth likely to dissolve. However, if these people are still giving you trouble, I'd recommend what most would for situations of sexual harassment. Document what wrongs are being done to you and bring this documentation to higher authority, like a club president. Never be afraid to be a whistleblower. Irony fully intended. If things still don't resolve after this, I'm sure you can find another club. If not, then you have the entire community here at the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading to help. Anonymous asked, is there a way to use click track from different manufacturers? They also asked what to do if a track planning software doesn't provide for a complete loop of track due to curve constraints. Well, Anonymous, when it comes to the track with plastic ballast, while it's generally not usual to mix track from different manufacturers, there are several ways around this. First, some manufacturers make adapter pieces that have one type of ballast attachment on one side and a different type on the other. 
However, not all brands of track have such adapter pieces. If the types of track you are looking to connect aren't compatible in this way, I'd suggest that you take two pieces of interest, cut away all of the nibs and clicking pieces on the plastic ballast, and solder the rails together at the rail joiners. When the rails have cooled, flip the track and use plastic cement or caulk on the underside of the plastic ballast to attach the two pieces firmly together. As to what you should do if you can't make a complete loop with sectional track, you could always go back through your plan and rework curves with various radii, but my personal suggestion is to close the gap with a single piece of flex track. This is what flex track was designed for, after all. Even if you're afraid of using flex track as a beginner, with this option, you need only get it right once for it to work, rather than needing to get it right a whole layout's worth of times. And the benefit is that you can now have a railroad with whatever track arrangement you want. The only downside of this is that you cannot use FlexTrack on temporary layouts, as it does need to be glued in place to hold its shape. So if that's what you're looking for, well, sadly, you're out of luck there. Go back to your track planning software and try and fiddle with various diagonal track arrangements, as that's usually what throws off the connectability of sectional track layout designs. In a similar question, Reese asked what's the smallest radius of track their locomotive could run on. In HO scale, the generally accepted minimum radius is 18 inches. In N scale, it's 8.5 inches, and in O scale, it's about 13.5 inches, though trolley models in all the scales can usually maintain a much tighter curvature than normal models. However, for the beginner's purposes, these are the absolute tightest you can go before you start to have problems. Additionally, not all locomotives will go around curves this tight. If you want to run longer locomotives, like six-axle diesels or steam locomotives with more than eight drivers, 24 inches in HO scale, 11 inches in N scale, and 18 inches in O scale is probably a much safer bet. Another concern is how the equipment looks on different radii. Longer equipment will have obnoxious overhangs on tight curves, which will distract from the realism. While your train could make it around a tighter curve, you might want to hide it in a tunnel instead to improve the look of the railroad. If nothing else, put a few trees between the curve and the viewer. A general rule of thumb is that, for visually aesthetic curves, go no tighter than a radius of three times the length of your longest car. The shorter and much simpler answer is to experiment. Get a piece of flex track and a sheet of cardboard, draw out a bunch of radii, and use pins to put the flex track in a variety of different curve sizes. Then push your locomotive or car along, or hook the track up to a controller temporarily, and couple it to your longest desired car length. This way you can determine which curve radius is right for you. Mark Richman asked our first question on the Facebook group after I restarted the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Mark asked, I've asked elsewhere, but I'll ask here as well. Solder rail joints or not? I'm about to lay track on my first layout, and people seem to have very different opinions. As with many things, Mark, the answer is yes and no. Every piece of rail should have a solid soldered connection to the bus wire to prevent dead spots. Many pieces of track, such as turnouts or small filler pieces, will be too short to warrant their own feeder wires, but will still need a solid connection because the glue used in ballasting or oxidization of metal pieces that occurs with later operation can gum up the rail joint and destroy electrical connectivity between the pieces of track. However, on the flip side, the absence of expansion joints can cause problems such as track warping during seasonal temperature fluctuations. 
Ironically, when I was on the California Zephyr, we had to stop about an hour or two east of Glenwood Springs due to the real railroad version of the same problem. Thermal misalignment events, they were called. They had to get a track crew out there, and it took them about 25 minutes to realign and reballast the track. Expansion gaps are especially important for layouts in aclimatically controlled spaces, like garages, attics, or small outbuildings, where the yearly or even daily temperature swings are much more significant. Since most modelers use flex track, what this translates to is dropping a feeder about every three feet, i.e. every piece of flex track, with no joint soldering. If you're using sectional track, I would solder a three or so foot section together, which is about three or four pieces, and then drop only one feeder per rail for that section. But whatever you do, make sure to leave other rail joints unsoldered with appropriate gaps between the rails to allow for thermal misalignment. Eli from New York asks, Where should I set up my railroad? I have limited space due to the exorbitant New York rent, but I still want to be involved in the hobby. While it's definitely print-worthy to see a basement-filling empire, don't get the wrong impression that modeling is only for mansioneers. One reason why many people turn to garden railroading is because there is usually a lot more space outdoors, but I'm assuming that this, too, is somewhat outside of your wheelhouse. There are still plenty of options for you. If you examine print publications, there are plenty of plans for shelf layouts, and they all have increasingly unique space uses. For example, imagine using that weird empty space above and behind a TV in a corner, or a shelf above a home office. People have used closets and unoccupied bookshelves as layout spaces. I once saw a layout design that was specifically tailored to the shape of an IKEA bookshelf shelf. As I mentioned in a previous episode, one of my favorite all-time plans was an Ian Rice plan that made use of the space underneath a top bunk-only bunk bed and above a desk in a teenager's bedroom. So, if you keep your eyes peeled for odd spaces around your apartment and look up various small layout plans, I guarantee you that you'll be able to find something. You might also want to consider a smaller scale or a switching layout with no continuous running option, as both will allow you much more flexibility in designing a layout for your layout space. A growing faction of the hobby is also that of micro-layouts, defined as a model railroad taking up less than four square feet. Many modelers who have micro-layouts also have larger home layouts and pick up micro-layout construction as a challenge for how much layout you can fit into an ultra-small space. You can even build a model railroad in a suitcase or musical instrument case for easy storage. My favorite resource for this is the Small Layout Scrapbook, so check out this website if building an ultra-small industrial tramway with lots of scratch building is what appeals to you. My final piece of advice to you is that you shouldn't forget about clubs. In every major city, there are a few model railroad clubs. By participating in them, you can either build a small module for use in train shows, or help to build a large permanent layout. Clubs allow you to continually hone your modeling skills and make friends, even if your space doesn't permit you to build a model railroad of your own at this particular time. I hope that, with this episode, I have answered some questions common to beginners. If you have a comment on the show, or wish to leave your own question to be answered, please check out the contact page of our website at bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... 
highball artist, noun, an engineer with a reputation for fast or skillful running. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling.